Hello there everyone and welcome back to the meeting room. Um, we are joined by a fantastic guest yet again, Mr. Ben Pring. Hello Hi, there. Yes, very good, thank you. And I'm joined as well by Tim. Hi Tim. Hello all. It's good to be back. It is wonderful to be back. We're going to be kicking this all off again. Um, let's get straight into it. Uh, who is Ben Pring? Sort of where did you grow up and have you always been in, interested in the, the future of society? Yeah, no, I grew up in um, just outside of London, Watford, if people know that part of the world, Elton yeah, John yeah. land. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I grew up mainly around there and I moved to the States about over 20 years ago. But yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time, went to college at Ma Manchester University, played, played hockey at the University of Nottingham for, for Manchester many, many years ago. I hope they've tidied up after I left uh, 40 years ago. Did you win? <laughs> I can't remember. I think, I think, uh, I can't remember through the alcoholic fog of what happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I've always been interested in the future, always interested in kind of what comes next and what's cool and interesting and different. And when I was kind of your age, I was probably more focused on uh, rock and roll and movies and stuff like that. But uh, it sort of uh, morphed into being interested in technology and business and economics and, as you say, society. And, um, yeah, I've carved out a sort of niche uh, in that area, kind of thinking about the future, writing about the future, helping people figure out, you know, how they can sort of leverage the upside of the future and, and tamp down the downside of it. So, uh, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> is that what you sort of give your, your overview as to what a futurist is? Yeah, yeah. Somebody who um, you know, who can help a client, you know, anybody who's interested in their own future, and everybody's got to be interested in their own future, um, to think through sort of perhaps a little bit more sort of systematically or uh, methodology, um, sort of more of a method to do that. Um my, my, my sort of MO, my sort of uh, vision of this has always been that by definition, nobody can be right or wrong about the future and what they say about mm -hmm. the future. Uh, anybody who says this is going to, this is what's going to happen, you know, don't believe them. That's, that's not true. But if you believe that, if you believe nobody can be right or wrong about the future, I think the role of somebody like me is just to be interesting is to be provocative yeah. and help people think through, you know, what comes next. And I think the cardinal sin in the in, in my game is to be boring, is to be dull. Uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are kind of boring when they think about the future. It's too obvious, it's too black and white. There's not enough nuance, not, not, not enough kind of understanding of the, the grayness of the world, if you like, the complexity of the world the balance between vested interest of the future and vested interest of the past or the present. So, yeah, so we try to help people, um, you know, they're typically making a big bet because, again, to, to do anything in the future, you make a bet on the future. And people, the best, the, you know, the people who come out best in making those bets are the people who think most deeply about that future. And, you know, if we can help them do that, then we're kind of doing our job. Um, now, you went to uh, university. Uh, how was your university experience? And, and you studied philosophy. Has, has this helped the way that you observed the world around you um, and obviously played a part in, in your role as futurist and author? Yes, I think it has, absolutely. Um, no, it's, it's fascinating to me 
Um, there's a famous quote that's attributed to Steve Jobs of Apple, who said that you have to live your life looking forward and you can only really make sense of it looking back. And I think that's, you know, for folks your age, um, it is very hard to sort of have a sense of what your future is. For somebody my age, I can look back now on that journey I've been in, the trajectory of it. And the fascinating thing to me to answer your question specifically um, is that what I studied at university and what I learned at university, which to be honest at the time, you know, I was maybe a little dismissive of, a little kind of skeptical, a little cynical about, you know, as a kind of new wave punk rocker kid, you know. Uh, and, but what happened there, I think I can see much more clearly now how valuable it was. And particularly around philosophy, I can see how much more valuable than that was than it felt to me at the time. And I think that's a good learning for people of your age, that you, know, you should trust in the process because it does pay off. And what's really fascinating to me is that I was, uh, so I was in Manchester in the early 80s, and as well as going to the open night at the Hacienda I, <laughs> and seeing New Order and all these bands, <laughs> I, um, the time I did spend in the walking the corridors of the philosophy building in Manchester, which was only, uh, if you, you know Alan Turing, I'm sure it was only 30 years or so after he'd walked there, those Gosh. corridors, which is kind of weird to me to think that now. But what I studied then, I studied uh, the philosophy of AI. Really? Okay. Wow. And um, I was just interested in that because I liked sci-fi. I liked Space Odyssey, 2000, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey. I liked, I liked James T. Kirk, you know. And so I was looking at it through that context of science fiction, but studying the philosophy of AI, the philosophy of consciousness, and particularly I remember really finding interesting the, the jump between the unconscious being, a stone, a dog, an elephant, and the human consciousness. How did that mm. jump happen? I remember finding that really interesting. And so for many years, I didn't really make any particular use of that. But now that's exactly what I do today. That's exactly my yeah. job, thinking about those things. Here I am 40 years later, and I, you know, I got a jump on thinking about those things from a long period of time. And that's sort of, so again, sort of wrap those random complicated thoughts together. Uh, I think that university experience was super uh, powerful and helpful and interesting and probably not in a way that I imagined it would be um, at the time. So, no, I think any kind of college age people listening, your, your contemporaries, uh, there's a lot of debate, obviously, around the role of education in the future of work in society. Um, you know, is it valuable? Is it worthwhile? Is it worth the money? Is it worth the time? And I think all of those questions are very relevant and very valid and particularly the debate about the cost of it. But I think the underlying um, belief in the power of, of studying, uh, I think I, I believe that more firmly now than I probably ever have done in my life. Yeah. 
Okay, so this move from philosophy to, to technology isn't very conventional, and you've mentioned about uh, looking into the philosophy of AI. Um, after making this move, do you feel that you've perhaps got a, a unique advantage in terms of perhaps your outlook from the philosophy degree? Yes, and that's a great question. And again, just I'm not going to make all of my comments Steve Jobs centric, but <laughs> another thing he said, which again is very powerful. There's a great book by an American writer called Walter Isaacson, who wrote the biography of Steve Jobs after he died. It's a fabulous book again, and it'll tell you about the history of technology, tell you the history of a brilliant brain that you know sort of came up with these amazing things which have changed our world. One of the things that um, again, Isaacson quotes Jobs in this book is about the really the secret source of Apple, the secret source of his brain was his just, again, human personality, him as a person. He was interested in different things that, that at face value seemed very weird. How would you be interested yeah. in those things? They're so odd. And I always paraphrase this by saying that at college, Steve Jobs studied calligraphy he was really interested in writing, you know, the, the art, the aesthetic of writing. And then as he got more into, you know, into the business world, he became absolutely obsessed by what in business terms is called supply chain management, basically making things, the process of making things. That's how he, he identified Tim Cook as, as coming into Apple because of Tim Cook's expertise in in man the management process of, of making something. And when you think about that, calligraphy, funky, weird, arty, supply chain management, the most boring kind of management thing you could think of, he put those together and that created Apple. And so again, to answer your question, that I think is a real recipe for anybody in the future of their work is if you're very conventional, you can only do one thing, you can only, you know, you can be an accountant, you can be a, um, a physicist, you know, there's a good career for that. But if you can f mix those things together, add that with something else which nobody else has ever really done before in the way that Steve Jobs did, then, you know, perhaps you're, a, you become, <laughs> perhaps you're a lunatic, but also <laughs> perhaps you're a genius and perhaps you do something completely different that the world has never seen before. And so at my sort of much more prosaic, uh, small scale, I've, I've always believed that, again, and I believe that's my role in the Center for the Future of Work at Cognizant, is to try and mix different things together in a way that other people haven't or other people aren't. And again, if I sort of personalize that, I think you know, I, can, I can talk philosophically, I can talk very business-orientated, I can talk rock and roll, I can talk accountancy, you know, that, that breadth and that ability to mix different things, I think is, is, can be very powerful. And I think in the world of the law, you guys sort of studying uh, to be lawyers or study the law, um, again, I think that's a very good example. A lot of lawyers who do very well in their career, they take that foundational skill and then they mix it with something totally different. They just don't stay in a law firm or just doing the law, but they mix that with something else. And um, that, that's often a kind of recipe for, um, you know, a really kind of successful career. So um, one trend which I find really interesting right now 
you have quite a few people from Silicon Valley who are studying stuff like psychology alongside their majors. Um, I think Stanford might even have their own special course which does that. So my question for you is studying like a humanities um, with philosophy. Did you find any like philosophical ideas if it influenced your work um, as a futurist? Yeah, no, that, again, that's a great point. Um, you know, one of the knocks on Silicon Valley increasingly recently has been that it's it's the antithesis of just of what I just said. It's a sort of monoculture, you know, the nerdy bro culture. Um, uh, you know, people have aimed that critique at a lot of kind of prominent figures in Silicon Valley that they don't have that breadth. They don't have that ability to mix different things. And so... I think you're right. I think there's a growing appreciation uh, amongst some people that actually mixing the arts and the sciences STEM with something very non-STEM is, is a good recipe. Um, coming back to the question about philosophy, the role of philosophy, ultimately the role of philosophy isn't so much studying um, St. Augustine or, or Wittgenstein or, or whoever. It's about... Uh, giving yourself as a young person the ability and the time and the bandwidth and the focus to think about things you know whatever it is um to read broadly to to think broadly to think as deeply as you can to be challenged in your thinking to realize that your thinking is oftentimes um not original at all um and and then with that, you know, muscle, if you if you put it in that context, that muscle, which might be have been built up more than another person's muscle, to take that into whatever area you want to take it into. And I sort of took it into technology. And um, that allows me again over you know a long period of time to think about things and to look at things from all different angles in a way that probably a lot of people don't. Um, so yeah, so I think you can apply the discipline of philosophy, the discipline of thinking, um, basically to anything you want. Again, in that sort of calligraphy and supply chain management model, mix that up with something else and hopefully good things will happen. Yeah, and I think as well, especially in, in recent years where there is that emphasis on sort of extracurricular um, activity and how it broadens a, a person as a whole rather than just coming in with with your degree and, and that's it yeah again I think this is this is in the broader debate about university college education the role of it I mean it's been a it's been a very interesting sort of last 50 years of this debate you know when I went to college uh, probably two percent of people went to college and um you know, in the UK, at least. And then, you know, Tony Blair came along and said this was wrong, we needed to broaden education. And we've had this explosion of education, college age education in the US. And now I don't know what the number is, it's probably 30%, maybe 40%. Um, that's wrought lots of problems in, it, in itself. Um, so many more people coming out of university now struggle to find a good job because we've got a sort of yeah. imbalance between the supply of educated people and the demand, uh, job demand for those educated people. Um, 
And so his son, Tony Blair's son, Ewan Blair, is now, if you're following this story, he now has a company uh, trying to offer training and education, higher end education, in a non-university-based model. And, and so <laughs> the pendulum sort of swinging and, and lots of people are pointing out in the German model, there's still much more um, respect for and appreciation for the trades, you know, non-university non non educated based education, but more going to a trade school and having kind of manufacturing um, discipline. Uh, and so shouldn't the English model, the British model kind of go back a little bit towards that? So the debate about the role of education, the role of a university education, I think is, is, is pretty hot at the moment. But I do think, again, for folks like you in a you know, very good university studying, you know, a proper discipline, a proper discipline, you know, hard discipline, um, I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't be too worried. There's a lot of angst and anxiety in the world yeah. about robots taking everybody's jobs and the future of work as this sort of dystopian vision in some people's minds. I don't entirely subscribe to that. And I think, you know, smart people like you guys and folks who might be listening to this, again, I think if you can, um, you know, you can take those skills, those qualities you guys are developing and deploy them into growth areas in the world, growth, which are in, in many cases sort of STEM-based things, technical-based things. Um, no, I think, I, I, I think uh, you guys will be fine. <laughs> so you mentioned this um, dystopian world where, which people are worried about where they um they can't get a job because the robots have taken them or all of the uh, more realistically all of the jobs have been automated um what do you think the future holds for technology and the workplace yeah well that that's a famous statement that came out of oxford university a few years ago that 47 percent of all jobs are going to be automated away by machines and um uh, that got a lot of attention, and, and if you put future work or you put robots and jobs into Google, uh, irony alert, um, you, that's kind of the, the headline you'll see. And we've actually debated that with the guys who, who um, wrote that report. And um, up until the pandemic struck, um, that stat, that report came out in 2013. So up until sort of this time last year, there was very, very little evidence to support that hypothesis that there was going to be this widespread, wide scale uh, collapse of employment because machines were going to take over the jobs of people. Very little real data to, to support that hypothesis. Of course, with the, with the pandemic, unemployment levels have kind of exploded. Um, uh, really not anything to do with the robots, but you know, a, another kind of bug. <laughs> Um, and the question in a way that's very hot in my world, the sort of future of world discussion um, uh, that I move in at the moment is, does the pandemic make it more likely that that hypothesis that jobs are going to be replaced by software, does the pandemic make that more likely to come true? And I think there is some truth to that. I think there is some truth to that. And I... I reached out to one of the Oxford guys uh, recently, Carl Benedict Frey, and I said to him that, you know, maybe your hypothesis 
which is a 20-year window. He, he, they looked at that statement, 47% of jobs would be automated away over 20 years. Maybe <laughs> now there is some uh, uh, more increasing momentum behind that. Um, so anyway, that debate continues to roll out. I think there are, again, to be very specific in response to your question, there are absolutely some very concerning dynamics that you can see in the world and the world of work at the moment, the world of economics, of big money, of big tech, that concern me uh, very significantly. Uh, and so I'm not a Pollyannish kind of guy that says, oh, don't worry, future work's gonna be fine, it's gonna be great. Uh, there are some very significant uh, threads about concentration of wealth, concentration of opportunity, uh, of people being left behind, being disenfranchised, people feeling alienated by the modern world. And you can see those manifest in the sort of political world in America, in the UK, in France, in Hong Kong, in China, around the world. And I think they are very real um, dynamics and I, we, we don't dismiss those at all. But at the same time, I think to have that very dark dystopian view of the future, um, I don't fully subscribe to that either. I, I think that is often a manifestation or a reflection of an individual's own um, where they are in the journey of their life. They tend to come from people who uh, you know, without without sort of um, caricaturing them, are often perhaps getting on in in age. They're sort of towards the end of you know their journey, and they, they think really they're they're talking about the end of the world, but they're really talking about the end and end of themselves. Yeah. Um, and and I think the truth is, if you look at the long arc of you know human history. Um, it's always been a mix of dystopia and utopia. You know, the, the, the Black Plague of the Middle Ages, yeah, that was pretty awful, but people fell in love, people got drunk, people had a good time. You know, in, in the midst of that dystopia, people had a, you know, people just got on with their lives and had a good time. You think about now in this pandemic, you know, pretty awful, particularly for young folks like you. Um, thank God you've got kind of online dating apps. You can fall in love, <laughs> you can have a good time still. In a way, that's why we're kind of locked down because you can have a good time online. If you couldn't do that, I don't think we'd have this lockdown at the moment. Uh, and so my point is, why do we in projecting into the future think that the future is either gonna be a dystopia or a utopia, it's not, it's gonna be both, yeah. just as the yeah. past was and just as the present was. So in the future, there will be killer robots and there will be neural networks and uh, we'll have surveillance in our brains and all sorts of scary things that we've seen in the movies, but people will fall in love and people will get drunk and people will have a good time. Twas ever thus. It seems like uh, getting drunk is the constant in uh, throughout. <laughs> I may be giving away a bit too much here. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you've done a, a lot of work, especially in the late 90s, in, in cloud computing, um, releasing some of the industry's first research notes in 1997. Um, and then after 14 years at Gartner, 
tracking cloud computing, you left to co-found Cognizant Center for the Future of Work. Um, talk about sort of those those points in your life and also what sort of work is done at the uh, center and the motivations behind creating it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, the center is a sort of think tank, if you know that phrase, it's kind of research group within Cognizant. Cognizant's a big technology uh, consulting and services company. We've got about 300,000 people around the world headquartered in the US, um, big company. And so we work with banks and airlines and government departments. So my group is really kind of um, you know, looking at leading edge tech and thinking about how we can take points of view and advice and guidance to those clients and, and help them think about the future of their work. So yeah, so going back into Gartner, Gartner's a big, um, the sort of top analyst firm, technology analyst firm, people write reports about uh, technology trends and um, they're quite well known for that. And so, yeah, I worked for them for a long time and I joined in 97. And again, for young folks listening to this, this is all in the midst of ancient time and will seem pretty weird, but this was really kind of when the internet was starting. You know, the commercial internet really only began to get any momentum at all in 1994. In fact, I was, I remember I was working for Coopers and Library, which is part of PricewaterhouseCoopers now, the big accounting and consulting firm at the time in Embankment Place over Charing Cross. And I remember a partner, senior partner coming up to me. I was, you know, I can't remember how old I was, my late 20s or whatever. And he said to me, Ben, I'd like to look into this thing. Um, we've heard about it uh, in America. It's a, something strange. Go and check it out, please. It's called the Information Superhighway. And that's what the that's what the internet was. That was the first yeah. name of the internet before it was called the internet. <laughs> and so uh, I could, there was no Google then that, to research the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I had to kind of dig around. And so I joined Gartner in 87, and I thought then that the internet, this thing which was very small, um, hardly anyone really even knew what it was, I thought that was going to be a big deal. And I thought that that was going to change how we did computing, how we did communication. I thought it was going to change everything. And I started writing about that idea. And again, back in time before the cloud was called the cloud, it was called application service providers or on demand or software as a service. All these names are sort of faded, really. And we now just refer to this thing as the cloud. And um, so I wrote about that and I moved to America to write about that. And I met a guy writing code in his apartment in San Francisco. Uh, and I got to know him a little bit and I said his company was going to be quite a big deal. And I wrote a report about his company. And this guy was called Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce.com. And uh, <laughs> so I wrote a report saying Salesforce is going to be a big deal. And uh, it is a big deal. It's a huge company yeah. now, and you're a multi-billionaire. Thanks, Mark. Don't forget your, your pals, you know. <laughs> 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 he forgot me totally. Um, <laughs> And uh, but I wrote about that. And, you know, initially that was met with great skepticism because big companies had their own data center. They had their own computers. You're saying we're going to have somebody else run the computer and not have a data center. You're mad, Ben. That doesn't make any sense at all. And then another kind of young guy called Jeff Bezos started up Amazon. 
and Amazon Web Services, and then fast forward to today, you know, he's the richest guy in the world. And um, so cloud is a huge deal. It's really changed business. We're obviously talking using the cloud now. Anybody listening is using the cloud now. And it's this incredible thing that, again, I think if you're young, it's hard to fully appreciate just how much this has changed the world. It's totally changed the world. My dad died in 1993. And so he, didn't, he never saw the cloud. He never saw an app or GPS or Spotify or, yeah. you know, it's amazing. He, if he came back now, I was think, he'd think we were living in a science fiction movie. This is yeah. what he might have seen mm. in a movie, but now we're just doing it routinely on a Monday afternoon, not even blinking an eye about it. So the bottom line is that in Gartner writing about it and coming to Cognizant, Cognizant's a company born of the cloud because all these people, 300,000 people all around the world, they wouldn't have been able to work together and without the internet, without the cloud. Um, so this has changed the world fundamentally. And, you know, the next big thing that's going to change the world even more radically than the cloud is what I know you guys are interested in, we sort of talked about already, is this whole notion of AI. Because mm. what's going to happen going in the next few years is that this incredibly powerful technology, machine learning technology um, coming out of London to a large degree, out of King's Cross. If you guys know uh, mm. uh, DeepMind in... Uh, yeah. by, that Google? By Google, yeah. This guy... You should try and get an interview with Demis Hassabis, who's the founder of DeepMind, because he's, I mean, I've met, uh, in my, whatever, 35 plus working years, I think I've probably met a handful of people I would truly describe as geniuses, and he's one of them, because uh, he's really inventing something absolutely extraordinary, software that can, in essence, write itself, technology that, in essence, can make itself. Um, so if you, if you have this foundational global network around the world, AKA the internet, AKA the cloud, and now you put, you infuse AI into this. I mean, when you're my age, your, your mind will be as blown by what's happened in the 40 yeah. years ahead of you as my mind is blown by what I've seen happen in the last 40 years. So. And do you think as well, it's, it's very proportionate in that as technology improves and advances, the the expectations almost um, advance way beyond that. Um, so what, what you can achieve improves and, and increases, but what you then want to achieve or what people then strive to achieve, um, it, it's almost exponential in terms of uh, uh, what's realistic versus what uh, can actually be achieved at the moment yeah no that is that's a great insight um uh, that's a terrific insight uh and there's a couple of ways to unpeel that one is that i wrote a piece a few years ago uh, i think i called it the blase index because for exactly the reason you just said our level of blasiness has gone off the charts because you've become so used to this all happening you just become bored about it oh, what's the big deal uh you can you become blase about it and that's in a way why you can probably tell it in my tone of my voice and what i'm saying is i'm not blase about it at all 
because I've lived through it and I've seen it and I know how extraordinary it is because I can make the comparison between what it was like before and what it's like now. The second thing, uh, that blasiness is, a, is an anchor, it's a weight. It stops the progress happening uh, as fast. And I think, again, relating this back to the sort of socioeconomic discussion we had a moment ago, I think there's, and some people have remarked on this, not, not an original thought of mine, but that there's, there's this exponential curve of technology progress, but then the human rate of adaptation isn't an exponential curve at all. It's a linear curve. And so the delta, the gap between the exponential curve of technology and the human curve of adaptation, again, explains why there's such rage in the world, why so many people are freaking out, because they see that. They can sort of conceptualize it, sort of understand it, that the world is leaving them behind. And they're saying, hang on, I, I matter, I count, you know. And, um, and all of that rage is sort of, channeled through these machines which of course you know mm. ironically have become all the rage yeah, yeah. So all of that rage is sort of bubbling up this is the trump rump this is the brexiteers this is the um gilet jaune in france this is the people rioting in in um hong kong and other parts of the world they can see for exactly the reasons you say that technology's just going faster and faster and faster and the people in that world are making more and more money and the yeah. people left behind, are, oh, what about us, you know? And so, yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting discussion to think about the fact that, yes, because of AI, because of cloud, because of other technologies, the world's accelerating. But if we allow it to continue to accelerate, if we continue to allow the powerful and the rich through technologies just to become more powerful and more rich, um, that's going to be a problem, I think. What type of litigation do you think would be effective in stopping the rich from getting richer and um, the middle class, the Western middle class facing the impact which technology is having? Yeah, no, it's a great question. In fact, um, without going into too much detail, we've got a new book coming out next month all about this, really. It's called Monster taming the machines that rule our lives, jobs, and future. Um, and we make some proposals, some recommendations to try and grapple with this and deal with this entirely. Some of them are around, um, if you like, uh, government mandated regulations, rules, legislation, litigation, as you say. Some of them are more in, in, the, in the field of sort of personal behaviors and attitudes. But I think there is to, you know, try and boil a lot into a very small thought, there, there is a huge role for governments to play in this. And in fact, the, the internet of the last 25 years has sort of been a government free space. And the libertarians and the, the, the people perhaps right of center believe that's the reason why the internet has been so successful is that haven't really been hasn't been really much over oversight from governments. Uh, the critique, the critics of that view are now just pointing out the, the downsides of what, what's going on, you know, this wealth explosion and, and concentration and, uh, and um, 
cancel culture and trolling online and bullying and tech addiction and FOMO and all these things. So there is a big role for, tech, uh, for governments uh, all around the world. To, I think that the, the key metaphor to have in your mind, and again, you guys, if you sort of go into, into professional law, both in the private practice or in the sort of policy areas, I think the key thing to think about Again, if you think about that story just told of, you know, from between 1994 and now, the information superhighway, that was, a, that was the phrase that Al Gore, who was the vice president to Clinton, used. He sort of tried to take credit for, for the internet. It was kind of a bit silly. Um, <laughs> but, but we have, we've built a road, an information superhighway, a, a motorway. We've built a road. Um, uh, and if you think about building roads in the 20s and 30s as cars developed and became popular, if you see a picture of Nottingham High Street in, say, 1940 or 1950 even, there's lots of cars there, but there's no, um, there's no traffic lights, there's no roundabouts, there's no don't park here signs, there's no... Uh, yellow lines on the edge of the road or dotted lines in the middle of the road. Um, it's a sort of free-for-all. If you look at that, if you look at Nottingham High Street today, it's full of red lights and traffic calming and yield and roundabouts. And the infrastructure of safety has been created to keep people safe on the information super high, on, on, the, on the road. That's the metaphor. Think about that in the context of the information superhighway. We've got this incredibly fast road, but there's no stop signs. There's no roundabouts. And now we can see people getting hurt on this information superhighway. So the next 25 years of the evolution of the technology is to create the infrastructure of safety, laws, rules, regulations, that can allow us to go fast, but not to kill ourselves or more importantly, yeah. kill other people. So I think the, the law, has a huge role. And again, if you're paying attention and sort of following this, the European Commu uh, Commission are becoming more active on this. Politicians in the US, when they can get away from trying to fight each other and <laughs> kill each other, <laughs> uh, are beginning to think about this. This is kind of, again, I think this is, this is gonna be the work for lawyers ahead. Uh, this is gonna be a... Um, a lot of work for lawyers ahead is to figure this all out. Um, because we can all see, and certainly in our book, we start off by saying, you know, we love technology. You know, Cognizant's a company that helps people want to use technology for good. We all want to use technology for good, but we can all see that in this sort of unregulated free-for-all, this wild west of the internet, that a lot of people are getting hurt and a lot of things are going wrong. So it behooves, you know, people of goodwill, people like us, people like you, uh, we've got to step forward and, and you know, fix, fix this before people of less goodwill kind of screw the whole thing up for us. Um, so moving on to the present day and a new trend which has recently emerged, um, I guess more likely exploded, is working at home. You've already mentioned how technology no longer just plays like a supportive role in the tertiary sector, um, but more of a central role. Do you see working from home continuing 
on a wide scale post-COVID, especially given the reduction in costs from office spaces it causes? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think that's very true. I think um, what a lot of people have experienced um, is that, you know, working at home has a lot of benefits, frankly. Yeah. personal benefits and benefits to the employer as well. Uh, and a lot of uh, business people who have got, you know, huge office, uh, huge offices are thinking, gee, do we really need these anymore? Do we, or do we need, we don't probably need as many as we've got now. The way I think about it is that um, what we've experienced, what a lot of people are experiencing at the moment is what I call heads down work where you're writing or coding or typing or doing your expenses or, you know, your head's down looking at the computer. That works held up pretty well. You know, people can do that anywhere. They're finding out now. Don't really need to be in an office to do that. But what I call heads up work, where you're, where you're trying to collaborate with your colleagues, you're trying to be creative, you're trying to get the energy of being together and getting jazzed and excited about an idea, uh, that hasn't held up so well in this online world. Um, and, and so if you buy that logic, and if that kind of resonates for you personally or resonates for you as an employer, then I think that, that extrapolation is that when we go back to a physical office, because I don't think the office is dead, I don't think the city is dead, a lot of people are kind of saying this at the moment, I don't think that's true. But when we go back to an office, it doesn't really make sense, particularly when those offices cost a lot of money to, to own or to, to rent or, and to operate. It doesn't really make sense to force people to go back and do that heads down work that they can do anywhere. You know, we found they can do it anywhere. Let's make those offices places where we do the heads up work, where people go to be together, to be social, to be collaborative to be creative. Let's not force people to go and sit in a horrible cubicle in some horrible office building on the edge of town which soulless and soul destroying and miserable. Let's get people to come together to be energized and excited and positive and, and creative and do their best work when they need to be together. So I think you might, I can see a scenario in which the kind of traditional office that we've got now, you know, the Ricky Gervais office Actually, I worked in that building. If you've ever seen the office, the UK office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The opening shot of the roundabout and the building on the other side of the roundabout. <laughs> I worked in that building a million years ago. Really? No <laughs> way. They've, they've torn it down now, apparently. It's in Slough. Yeah. But that kind of office, which is, you know, what he satirized and parodied, and obviously it was such a huge hit because it touched such a big nerve for so many people. I think that's kind of going to go away a little bit. And we're going to have um, we're going to have offices which are much more social. I mean, almost party spaces. And I, I don't mean that in a kind of glib way. I mean that you know you'll probably work. Most people will work at home. You know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, just doing the heads down work, and then they'll go into the office on a Thursday or a Friday to do the heads up stuff, the creative fun, the, uh, the creative stuff, the collaboration stuff, and then you know, the drinks will be served and everybody will network and, and develop relationships and think about stuff. And, and, and that's the sort of culture of a business. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think this home at work at home experience a lot of people are having at the moment 
I don't imagine once the vaccine has got sort of kicked in and once the natural euphoria of being able to go out and around uh, again sort of has worn off a little bit because uh, you know people are talking about this is going to be the roaring 20s again you know it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be like after the war it's going to be you know crazy party time for a while I think that's probably true students like you you know you'll be out sort of partying 24 7 for a, for a few years to kind of you know <laughs> make up for lost time for lost time exactly and once that once that equalizes then i think again I, I think the office that you guys work in when you're 30 will probably be quite different to the office that a 30 year old was working in you know a year ago um, now, a big criticism of obviously working from home is the, the issue of mental health and how many people have been heavily affected. Um, you, you've talked about perhaps this midway or, or this, this point where people are doing half of the week uh, from home and then they come together for this heads up work, as, as you call it. For, for some people, this may not be enough. Their, their daily going out to work is what keeps them sort of motivated. It keeps them incentivized and it, it more importantly keeps them happy. Um, and especially in industries where there's much more heads down work, what do you think is going to be a, a compromise to deal with this, especially when society is um, looking to tackle the issue more and more? Yes. No, again, it's a good question, and there's a lot of subtlety and nuance, obviously. Um, you might begin to see some uh, separation of the workforce into the extroverts who want to be in the office with a lot of people, <laughs> and then the introverts who are quite, home, quite happy being stuck at home doing their own thing. Um, the people who would tend to be saying uh, about mental health and, and tend to be talking about wanting to be with other people, they tend to be extroverts. And the extroverts have had the upper hand for 200 years because the <laughs> introverts had to work in their space and now the extroverts are having a taste of their own medicine and they don't like it. <laughs> um, so I, I think, again, this is going to be tricky for employers, employers to figure out what their policy around this is, because I think, again, if you want to be an employer of choice, if you want to be a brand name that a young person coming out of law school wants to go and work for, I think you're going to have to be quite flexible in the, the, the models that you offer to that employer, employee. Uh, I think trying to force fit everybody back into a one-size-fits-all cubicle, I don't think it's going to make sense. But it's going to be interesting to see how people sort themselves. I'd like to work for an employer that's very happy for me to work at home, and I'm not uh, penalised for that. I'm not dinged for that. I'm not perceived as, as shirking at home. I really am working at home. Yeah, yeah. Um and conversely, uh, employers that don't over-promote the extroverts who want to be in the office just because they want to be in the office. So I think what you're going to see is more choice. I think you're going to see uh, the phrase that big businesses use is hoteling or hot-desking, mm. where you, you know, there's a certain amount of office space and you book it ahead of time like a hotel. Um, and so they can have probably 60% of the office space they need for 100% of their population because there's, there's churn between people coming in and people coming out. Um, 
but 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 the point about mental health and and resiliency and just not liking beyond being online the whole time i can, i'm completely sympathetic to that again what's kind of amazing to me is pre-pandemic i've been working at home sort of 25 years now pre-pandemic i would said the ratio between uh, audio calls phone calls basically and mm. video calls because i've had you know video conferencing technology for 18 years uh, I would say that ratio was probably 10, 10% uh, video, 90% audio. Because of pandemic, because of Zoom, it overnight completely yeah. inverted. And now it's 90% video. And the truth is, and I think, again, this is what a lot of people are realizing, is that actually being on a video call like this is quite exhausting, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert having to sort of project into the screen, kind of look <laughs> yeah. at the other people in their little boxes is pretty, I don't know, it, there's something sapping, energy sapping about it. I think the simple solution is let's forget the, the video, let's just go back to audio. And, and I think a lot of people are going to do that, just go back to audio for, for calls, for video calls. Um, but but again, and I don't know whether you've seen this in the last few days, the, the head of KPMG, uh, the CEO of KPMG UK, UK, had to resign recently because he was on a video call with his people and he was not terribly sympathetic to that question about mental health. And yeah. he sort of just said, oh, you know, you guys are lucky you can work at home, pull your socks up, stop moaning. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people didn't like to hear that. And he's, he's had yeah. to actually quit because of that. Uh, it wasn't very sympathetic, wasn't very empathetic, wasn't very in tune with the times. Um, but having said that, there's a, there's a, an element of truth that he said, maybe it was an uncomfortable truth that people didn't want to hear, is that, um, again, I think a lot of people who are working at home, working online for the first time, haven't figured out how to optimize that for themselves. Mm. Um, and part of that optimi optimization is learning how to manage your own schedule, your own calendar, you, when when you find it best to work for yourselves for yourself um maintaining your own boundaries you know turning the thing off at five o'clock or six o'clock not lying in bed looking at your email all night stuff like that and there's some, some there's some personal disciplines and personal best practices though i i don't think um, I think people are still figuring out and, and trying to uh, trying to learn, trying to optimize. Um, but I, I'm very sympathetic to the notion that people are not sort of digging this, not enjoying this experience again, because I think if you are more on the extrovert end of that spectrum, you do get your energy from being with people. You do get energy from being part of a team. You do get sort of, um, motivated by you know peer group pressure and all that kind of stuff and being part of the gang being part of the team and being sort of isolated stuck on home you know only the dog to kick that kind of thing that simply isn't for everybody sure so if we skipped forward 10 years time i'll keep this question like as broad as possible <laughs> if we skip forward 10 years time what do you think work would look like well, I think there's a, there's going to be an explosion of innovation in communication technology. I mean, if, if you think that Zoom is as good as this interaction is going to get, then I think that's that's 
misleading. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in how we communicate. Uh, there's a whole bunch of new uh, software and companies coming up. StreamYard, mm -hmm, Microsoft's Viva that has just come out. And then VR, virtual reality, we think is a big deal. I mean, we'll probably be doing this session, this conversation in a VR platform, yeah. in a couple, certainly within 10 years, yeah, yeah. probably sooner than that. Uh, I'll probably, if I'm, if I'm interested in talking to you guys, I'll come along to that VR thing in person. If I'm not so interested, I'll just send my avatar. <laughs> yeah. my avatar will come along and I'll, you know, it'll, it'll know through GPT-3, if you, if you know what that is, very smart, the next generation of, um, of uh, text generation software. It will ask me, what do you want to say at the meeting? And I'll say, uh, tell them yes to that, no to that, and maybe to the other thing. And then the, the avatar with this software will, will just respond, you know, say, um, I don't think I can help you with that one this year, but perhaps we could talk about it next <laughs> year. So, so there's a very cool platform called Wave XR that you can check out, which uh, music acts are using at the moment to do gigs in. John Legend, if you know him, yeah, did a yeah. gig in Wave XR recently. And uh, somebody you probably don't know, pre your vintage Dolly Parton, <laughs> she did a gig <laughs> in Wave XR. So I think that's going to be a meeting uh, platform. I think um, I think uh, we will be using tools like AI to do much more of the work that we kind of do today, writing. Uh, scheduling meetings. Think about how many emails we we exchanged to yeah. set this thing up. That's all going to become completely automated. You know, there's a there's a cool company in New York called X.AI that schedules meetings. Um, if you think uh, we we probably exchanged a dozen emails, that can all just just be done automatically. You know, set up a meeting with Ben, and it'll all happen. Um, I think you're going to see um, uh, the voice interface, you know, Alexi, Siri, Siri become much more prominent. Uh, you know, this is the digital age we're living in, but digits are going away because we're just going to talk yeah. to technology. We're mm. not going to be typing so much that heads down work. We'll just be talking to technology. I don't know whether you kind of write your essays nowadays by, by using a word, uh, a voice uh, typing uh, piece of software, that will become very, very common. Um, so yeah, I think there's going to be a huge amount of innovation. I mean, on the further edge of the further edge of the radar, there are things like digital humans, which are going to become quite common. Again, that sort of avatar idea, a completely synthetic human being. Mm -hmm. So when you you know phone up uh, or when you want to get in touch with your bank, the bank will just have a digital human um, yeah. and you'll be able to, in your preferences, like on your phone now, uh, you'll be able to say, I want a, uh, an attractive girl with a deep, sexy voice. Or whatever. <laughs> However you want to personalize that interface, you'll yeah. be able to do that. Um, and then the un underneath all of that, we're on the cusp of this incredible revolution in quantum computing, if you know about quantum computing which again has been a theory and been sort of on the edge of the radar for a long time, but it's becoming uh, 
certainly within the next 10 years, within that window you suggested, become more and more common, more and more real. And the stack to get your head around, which again, may blow your mind, or you may be high on the Blasi index and it doesn't blow your mind, but it blows my mind, is that the um, Google, again, Alphabet, uh, released peer-reviewed research over a year ago now in their quantum computing um, speed tests and a calculation that it would take a classical supercomputer, the, the fastest computers we have in the world today, a calculation that would take that computer 10,000 years to do is now done by a quantum computer in 200 seconds. So if wow. you think about that, talk about exponential curve and talk about the acceleration, yeah. um, the computers, the underlying fundamental computing power we will have will be so much faster, so much more powerful that a digital human, an avatar, complete voice, probably a voice, a, a neural interface between heads and, and thinking. I mean, all the things we've seen in science fiction that we've dreamed of and imagined, you know, they'll 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 be certainly in the world, you know, in reality within that 10-year window. So again, that sort of excites me. Yeah. I think there's um some things I've watched now, you, you see these sci-fi things and you almost notice that you you do live with a, a simplified version of or or something that's being tested or that's exactly what I thought my dad, if he came back now, he'd think we were, he were, we were in a movie. There's a great show on Hulu, if you're interested in quantum, called Devs. Uh, check that out. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a sort of thriller. It's not, not a documentary, it's a thriller. I forget the guy from uh, Nick uh, Offerman from Parks and Rec and uh, things like that. He's in the show Devs. It's all about quantum computing and next generation quantum. It's a super cool show. Brilliant. Okay. Um, we like to end on a, a big last question, which I always give Tim the, the honour of asking. Um, thank you very much, Jed. Um, so from your experience, are there any special traits or behaviours which helps to distinguish successful individuals? Gosh, um, one of my favourite quotes is from the painter Picasso. Pablo Picasso, um, he said, and he said this in 1967. So think of that, 1967. He said that computers are useless. They can only give us answers. And uh, we've got much more powerful computers nowadays than in 1967, but I think that's still true. Uh, really, they only give us answers, and it's us, it's you, it's humans that ask the questions. Uh, and I think that is always my fundamental thought in a kind of question like that, Tim, is that it's curiosity really is, is the fundamental driving, propelling human quality and characteristic, I think. It's the people who are curious, who want to know you know, what's around the corner, what's around the river bend, people who want to ask why or what's going on and when's it going on, how's it going. It's that sort of human curiosity 
that drives an individual, an institution, a society forward. And, and um, I think that continues to be true, even though our powerful technology does begin to give us answers a little bit more. You know, should I turn right or left? Well, the GPS in the car can tell you that now. It's giving you an answer. But we, that, that notion of questioning, that notion of being interested, uh, my observation, again, is that um, both personally and professionally in my lifetime is that, you know, a lot of people aren't that interested. <laughs> a lot of people aren't that curious. Uh, and, you know, okay, that's fine. It's a vivid difference. It's a big world. But those people don't, in my experience, tend to go that far geogra geographically, physically, metaphorically. You know, they're perhaps quite happy in their, you know, in their um, spot, you know, where they are. And that's fine. No problem with that. But the, I think, again, to answer your question, what really separates the, the successful people is the people who are just curious, who, you know, who want to know more. They, I can do this. How do I do that? I can hit the ball this way. But how do I hit it that way, or you know, things like that? I, I, yeah. That to me comes from an underlying human curiosity, which is nurture and nature. Uh, education has a huge role in that. Uh, from you know, from when you're very young to in the work you guys are doing today is just wanting to know. You can't really, you know, somebody who has got that they'll go a long way and, and certainly by your age, you can't really teach somebody that anymore. They've either kind of got it or they haven't. I think that is a fantastic way to, to round up the episode. And it's, it's not an answer that we've had before, um, to be honest. So thank you very much, Mr. Pring for joining us um, on this episode. And I think you've put a, uh, a lot less for scary outlook on, on technology and, and it's a possibility. So thank you very much for joining us in the meeting room. Thanks, Jed. Thanks, Tim. Great talking to you. You too.